Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode number 11 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Latini Creative Solutions, who for over 20 years have used their experience in design, print, and marketing, specializing in creative solutions that capture your voice and deliver your message. From supporting and energizing your already established brand to developing your company's identity and marketing campaigns, Latini Creative Solutions provides design that is thoughtful, focused, and creatively executed. So if you're looking to start something new or rebrand something you've had for a while or just freshen up your social media outlets, call Christine at Latini Creative Solutions or you can just find her online at latinicreative.com. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Jumptown Skydiving. If you have always wanted to jump out of a plane, now is the time to do it. This fall with the foliage in New England, there is no better time to go two and a half miles up in the air in an airplane and then jump out. And yes, you'll get pictures and video to prove it. So get a group of your friends or family together because yes, they offer group discounts. And for the students, they offer student discounts and military discounts as well. They're taking appointments for tandem skydives Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and they're conveniently located in Orange, Massachusetts, just 70 miles outside of Boston. Log on to JumpTown.com to get all of the details on how you could change your life by experiencing skydiving. Before we get rolling with this week's podcast episode, I want to welcome all of the new people that have picked up a Mistress Carrie backstage pass in the last week. My official fan club is available on Patreon. You can find me at patreon.com slash Mistress Carrie. So welcome to the fan club to Krista, David, Mark, Lisa, Karen, Michael, Jim, Dave, Penny, Trisha, Kim, and Heather who all got themselves a Mistress Carrie backstage pass, which gives them exclusive access to bonus content, inside info, polls, discussions, pictures, and pretty soon discounted merchandise on the upcoming Mistress Carrie online store. So head over to Patreon and get yourself a Mistress Carrie backstage pass. Okay, this week's episode of the podcast may be my most personal yet. I spent 22 years on the air at WAAF, and in all those years, I always spent time volunteering with all of the branches of our military and our veterans community, and also our first responders. And over the years, I've been asked over and over again where that drive to support these communities comes from. I've been lucky enough in my family to have generations of selfless heroes that have served in different branches of the military, and as police officers, firefighters, nurses, paramedics, EMTs, and one of the people that really shaped how I look at our military and veterans is my Uncle Froggy. I grew up calling him that. He's not my blood uncle. He's one of those close family friends of your parents that you've known since the day you were born and is closer than a lot of the blood family that you have. It took me years to find out his real name was Gary because we just always called him Uncle Froggy. And in my childhood, he was always there. But I also noticed that he acted strangely when it came to things like fireworks. And as a little kid, I always thought that was funny. 
as I got older, I realized that his response to those things was post-traumatic stress because of the time that he spent in Vietnam in 1968. My Uncle Froggy moved away from Massachusetts decades ago and comes back very infrequently. But we've always kept in touch, even though he's not exactly technologically savvy. I was actually supposed to visit him earlier this year, but between the radio station going off the air and the coronavirus, we weren't able to make that happen. So I know for a fact that this is his first podcast appearance because I don't really even know if he knows what a podcast is. But I reached out to him and I asked him if I could interview him. I wanted him to have an opportunity to tell his story. And before it was too late, I wish that I had done this with my grandfather to hear his stories of World War II and Korea. And I wish that I could have met his father to hear his stories of World War I. But I'm honored to be able to supply a place for my Uncle Frog to tell his stories about the Central Highlands of Vietnam in 1968. And I know by the end of this, you'll understand me a little bit better because he's been such an inspiration in my life and into all of the work that I do. I also know that by the end of it, you'll have an Uncle Froggy too. So I'm honored to introduce you to my Uncle Gary, better known as Uncle Froggy. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your bra on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stain, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. This is Marilyn Manson, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Uncle Frog. (laughs) Hi. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Got a lot of heat out here where I'm at. Oh, I'm sure. You've been you've been living out in the desert for a very long time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this for me. No problem. I've wanted to sit down and and interview you for a long time and I was hoping that I was going to be able to do it earlier this year cuz I was going to come out and visit you and then the coronavirus has kind of made everything a little more difficult. Yeah, it's done everything for the world. <laughs> Where so you're uh, outside of Vegas, right? How hot is it there right now? Uh, right now, it's kind of cool. We're about a hundred and about a hundred and two. <laughs> it's one of the cool days that we got so far. <laughs> I don't know how you can handle it, and you're so 
you're so unaccustomed to the snow that in the wintertime, that's what you say to us. Like, I don't know how you guys handle it anymore. Well, what we do is we stay indoors. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about why it is that I call you Uncle Froggy. So um, you're not my biological uncle. Right. But everybody has those people in their family that are friends of their parents or friends of the family that have always been there and that you grow up calling onto your uncle. And so that's what you are to me. Yeah, I kind of kind of grew up with you. You were a little baby and I was babysitting for you at one time. <laughs> so you, How was so, I as a baby? It was like so your parents could go out and have a have a night out sometimes and um as soon as everything was good and then about 5 minutes after they left you always started crying and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I'd be running around going crazy and we didn't have cell phones back then. So it was like, Oh no. Well, you, you grew up really good friends with my dad, right? That's how you kind of ended up being stuck babysitting me. You guys went to high school together. Yeah. We, um, yeah. When your dad moved to Lumminster, we, we became friends and, we got along with each other really good and we just kind of continued hanging around with each other. Now you guys were both as athletic. My dad was a bigger guy and he played football, but you're a smaller guy in stature. And so you were quite the runner. Yeah. Yeah. Your dad also, I think if I'm correct, he also wrestled, um, was on the wrestling team and yeah, but with my size, um, football wasn't going to be my thing. So, all I did growing up was basically in high school, did a lot of running and played a lot of basketball. And you and have loved basketball your whole life and growing up in Lemonster with the Celtics. I mean, come on. Yeah, it was um, one thing about Lemonster, at least I know back then I've been gone from Lemonster for uh, 50 years now. But one thing about Lemonster is sports was really big and we had it was like all the teams that we had were really good um back back in those days and i'm sure it's continued yeah but then you know it, it's kind of hard not to love basketball when you're growing up a celtics fan too oh yeah boston celtics um i remember the celtics were back in those days they were my favorite team and then my favorite player was a guy named Jerry West. He played for the, the Lakers, our, our enemy. <laughs> <laughs> but he was one heck of a player. I kind of kind of idolized him back then in basketball. And you've but, you've con it. you've continued that love of basketball into your career because you've been a basketball coach for years. Yeah, I've coached um Good grief. It's got to be 35, 40 years as a head basketball coach. And um, I just, I love the sport. And I was fortunate enough one year to, I had a team that we won a state championship. So that was quite the feeling. We got to play it out 
when we got to play for the championship, we played in a, back then it was called America West Arena. That's where the Phoenix Suns had their home games at. And that's where we got to play our state championship game. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> and for a guy that's not big in stature, you've got to have skills and speed in order to be successful playing basketball. And you've been able to not only master that yourself, but also pass that along because you've been coaching girls for a long time. Yeah, we, um, as again, you don't have to be, if you can dribble a ball and you can shoot a ball, you don't have to be real big, but size does help. That's for sure. And on the girls side, you know, they always say the, um, on the guy's side, they play above the rim and on the girl's side, they play below the rim. And, um, and the girls, are most likely they're most of the time I noticed they're very coachable and they definitely, as the years went on, when I first started coaching them, I've seen them get so much more competitive. I mean, <laughs> just like guys, they hate losing. <laughs> Well, I I would like to think that all of these skills that you have developed as a coach with girls athletics, that it was all that babysitting experience with the unruly infant crying five minutes after my parents left (laughs) that really, that really got those coaching skills honed for you. Yeah. Whenever you misbehaved, I had you running suicides. (laughs) So, <laughs> or crawling suicides back in those yeah. days. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, and one thing I, on the sports side, coaching, I know when I was in, what I loved it when I came out to the, the Midwest area or Southwest area of the country, coaches in the summer we're allowed to coach our, we can coach our kids if we want, you know, you can bring a whole team in and then we would play tournaments. Whereas I know back East, at least in that, you couldn't, um, you couldn't coach your team in the summer. And I never, I never quite understood why you couldn't do that because summer is summer. And I always used to say, well, the state association is their time is done. Their time is during the school year, but it shouldn't be involved in the summertime. So I'll probably get back backlash on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just, you want your teams to be great. And if you're, you know, not teaching in the summertime and the students aren't doing anything, why not put in the extra practice? Right. and. You know, you, you, a coach couldn't make it mandatory, but the, in the summertime, but the kids wanted it. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, we'd go weekends and play tournaments, you know, they'd come in work on their skills and work on their offense. And usually by the end of the summer, these are the same kids that are coming out during the school year. You've kind of, you've, you've already gotten to play. We got uh, sometimes in the summertime, we'd play against 20 to 30 different high schools. And, um, come, come November when basketball starts, they're ready to go because they've already played a summer, you know, all together and, and they love it. (laughs) 
Well, growing up in the Northeast, it's impossible to grow up and not love sports because we're so rabid about it up here. And you ran track and and played basketball through high school. And what year did you graduate? 1967. So you, as a music fan for me, graduated and were kind of around for this amazing heyday in rock and roll. Oh, the rock and roll? The, the 60s? Yep. Yeah. Um, a lot of great, I guess, for music for me, I love listening to the, still love listening to the 60s music and the 1980s music. That's, <laughs> those are my two eras that I like the most. But in high school, what music were you listening to? I mean, you you were in high school from, you know, right through the middle of the 60s. I mean, that's such was, great music came out then. I was, uh, we had the Beatles. We had the Rolling Stones. We had the Moody Blues. Um, the Association. Um, do you remember those groups? <laughs> I remember all of them because... When you were hanging around with my parents and all my parents' friends were around, that was all the music that they were playing all the time. And I credit being exposed to that kind of music as a really young kid with helping to give me the love of music that I have now. Yep. And I, well, I still, I still listen to the music. I still have some, um, eight tracks <laughs> that I've saved. <laughs> I still have some too. And I have a lot of albums. Oh, I got my albums too. Unfortunately, there's a lot of scratches on them now. <laughs> so you graduate from high school in 1967. And like a lot of people of that era and age group, you graduate right in the middle of the Vietnam War and there's a draft. And so I want to talk about what it's like when you turn 18 to go and register for the selective service, which a lot of younger people you know, might not even really understand as being something that might actually happen to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause now there is no draft. And back then I remember going down to register for the draft and I'm going like, Oh boy. Um, it was like you almost planned on getting drafted back then that you were going to, you know, after going and do two years in the military. So, so when, I mean, obviously Vietnam was in everyone's mind and you turn 18 and you go, so did you go down with all of your friends? I mean, how does, how does that work? You just go down and sign a piece of paper um, for the draft or to enlist or to no draft. for the, for the I draft. Just, I went down, I just went down and, um, by myself and, um, signed up, signed the papers and that was about it. You know, you kind of leave and, you know, they say, well, you may get, you know, basically at the draft board, they say you, you may be getting a call sometime in the future. And then you, you ended up in the army. Was it because you got drafted or because you decided to just enlist? I, you know, I ended up, you know, after graduating from high school, um, 
I enjoyed the summer. I wasn't going to college back then. And I was working in a lot of different factories. You know, if you remember, Lemonsil was a big factory town back then. And I don't know, it just seemed like my life wasn't going any place at the time. So I, one day I just, at lunch break, I went down to the, the recruiting stations and ended up signing up with the Army because enlisting in the other branches, it was a four-year commitment. In the Army, it was a three-year commitment, which was shorter. And that was it. <laughs> I enlisted. What did your family and all of your friends think when you did that? Um, they thought I was crazy. Um, I, I know my, my parents were really mad. Um, my friends, they thought I was crazy, but they definitely supported me on it. You know, they were good friends then and they continued to be friends during that period of time. Was anybody in your family in the military before you enlisted? My dad my dad was served in the Air Force during World War II. I know he served over in Africa. And um, I can't think of anybody else that was in the service. From- it just always seems that, that service kind of runs in the family, that there's some kind of lineage with it, you know? And so, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that your dad, yeah, you know, served in the Air Force. Yeah, there was... You know, he wasn't definitely pushing the service, I guess, during that period of time. Because um, you could see on the news, evening news and things like that, they were starting to sh- show the war on the news. And um, I know he didn't want me to go in. <laughs> so you spent the summer after graduation just having a good time. And then comes the fall and you're working in factories and you go and enlist in the Army. When did you actually leave for basic training? Do you remember? Yeah, I think it was no, just before November, probably middle of October, I'd have to say. Of 1967? Yeah. And you get on the bus, and where do you go? Oh, God. Uh, you get off the bus, and immediately people start yelling at you. Uh, at all of us. Where were you when you went through basic training? I went to Fort Dix, New Jersey. And um, like I said, we, we all get off the bus and boy, they're yelling at us and everything else. You know, it's like, oh boy, are we in for it for the next eight weeks? <laughs> so back then, basic training's eight weeks. Yeah. Basically. And yeah. So what, what do you remember about basic training? Do you, do you remember the guys that you went through training with or? Yeah, there, there, there are about three or four guys that I, I remember they, they didn't end up in the infantry with me and um, they had different jobs. And once they got out of basic and I remember we were, I think there were eight of us in, in a, in a room. And all I remember was basically what 
basic training was it was a lot of doing a lot of push-ups a lot of running trying to teach you how to work as a team <laughs> and um and to learn kind of learning what authority means and um that was about it for that and after you go through those eight weeks of it you know they teach you how to shoot a rifle they teach you uh a lot of discipline, I guess it's, you know, following orders and someone that's above you tells you what to do. You don't, <laughs> you don't talk back and say, I, I don't want to do this. Do you remember your drill instructor's name? Sergeant Williams. <laughs> I knew you'd remember that. Sergeant Williams. And in a platoon, well, there was a, a company and there were four platoons and there were each each platoon had, uh, I think it was 28, 28 to 32 people to a platoon. And then the four platoons made up a company. And each platoon had a drill sergeant. And I remember Sergeant Williams, he was, he was strict, but they all were strict. But of the four drill sergeants, you know, the other three platoons, he was the best. Uh, we were lucky. I mean, he didn't. If, as long as you did what you were told, you know, he, he'd do his share of yelling, but some of those other drill sergeants from those other platoons were total, totally crazy. <laughs> I'm going like, we used to go like, oh, I'm glad we're in this platoon. And there was, it was a drill sergeant, and then there was a, a Sergeant Gillison, and because he was had been airborne, and he had gone to Vietnam, and that's where I was. No, I, that's where I was kind of heading. And uh, he, he was kind of my idol as a drill sergeant. <laughs> so. Well, your experience and, and skills at running growing up must have helped you going through basic training. Oh, yeah. The running part didn't, didn't bother me at all. And um, in the physical part, you know, just from, you know, playing basketball a lot growing up and all that, I didn't, I didn't have a problem with it. And you learn, you learn to when their drill sergeants are yelling at you and screaming at you. They're they're also trying to teach you, so you kind of learn. I kind of learned to filter out the yelling and take in what they were yelling at us about. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. You know, ignore the yelling because that's they're gonna. It's no matter what, they're gonna do it all day anyway. So. Some people could handle it, and then I saw people that didn't <clears throat> didn't handle it too good, had troubles mentally with it. When you go into the military, you go to basic, and and you know you you have what's called your your MOS, which is your your job, your specialty. Did you select the infantry, or did the infantry select you? <clears throat> I selected it. This is why, <laughs> this is why people are telling me I was stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe it was those days of babysitting you that drove me crazy. I don't know. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but actually, that that actually ba babysitting you happened after I came back. So, well, the the infantry they're the they're the grunts. They're the worker bees. They're the they're the boots. And 
that's a lot of hard work that you know you're volunteering for when you join the infantry. Yeah, it was, I don't know, maybe it's because I played sports and that seemed the way to go, you know, let's go, <laughs> go that way. And then I went to that, the airborne school, jump school, and that was a three-week thing. I said, let's do the whole thing. <laughs> so when you graduated from basic training, did your friends and family go to see you graduate? No, no, let's see. It's didn't see many parents there from anybody, you know, from our company when we graduated, when we graduated, uh, I think maybe a lot of that might've had to do back then what the people thought of the a lot, not everybody, but what a lot of people thought of the military, they didn't like it because people were being drafted. We were in a war or actually they don't call it war; they called it police action or something that wasn't um, popular in the country. So back then, sometimes people didn't want to walk around in a uniform. <laughs> so you graduate from basic training, you're in the infantry, and you decide, let's go to jump school. Now, for me, you know, I've been skydiving for years, so I think that's awesome. But again, everyone else probably thought you were crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but... You know, it's what I, uh, if I probably had to do it again, all over again, if I was young, young again, I'd do the same thing. <laughs> do you remember what your first jump was like? Uh, yeah, I was about, yeah. Um, it was nerve, a little nerve wracking. Uh, and then once you got into that doorway to jump out, I'm going, okay, this shoot better, this shoot better open. And kind of like I jumped out and I think I had my eyes closed the first time and, um, shoot open coming down. It was a good day out there and we kind of just floated down. Once we landed, once I landed, I was ready to go up. I wanted to do it again right away. <laughs> Maybe you're where I got my love of skydiving. That might be it. Might be it. <laughs> Where did you go to airborne school? Fort Benning, Georgia. Nice and warm. Yeah, that's where they send everybody for jump school. Actually, the Marines went there and the Navy went there. That was going the because the Marines had a group called Force Recon, and the Navy had SEALs, and they did their jump training with us. So it was a mixture of army guys that were going airborne and your Navy and Marines. I kind of became a friend of one of the Marines there. He was going force recon. His last name was minor. I can still remember his last name. We kind of became friends and um, we joked around each other, you know, who was better, the army or the Marines. And we knew, we knew, we knew the army was. <laughs> That debate is still going on today. Well, I'm sure it does. I could tell you a joke that we used to that the army side is shoot. Nah, I won't. Oh, come on. Yeah. Uh, I can't. Come you on, know, do they, it. I don't want anybody to get mad at me. Get mad at Come on, you earned the right to, to bust some balls. This yes, is what being- I didn't come up with. Well, I didn't come up with this anyways. This is a drill sergeant. And he goes, one day the army drill sergeant goes, 
what's the difference between the Army and Marines? He said, the drill sergeant said, um, he said, he goes, one day I was in the bathroom, in a bathroom, went to the bathroom and was leaving after I went. And um, there was a Marine in there. And he said, hey, doesn't the Army teach you to wash your hands after? And he's, and then the Army guy turned around and he said, well, the Army taught us when we go to the bathroom not to go on our hands. <laughs> I guess they didn't teach you that in the Marines, huh? <laughs> I mean, it was like, I remember our drill sergeant. I, I thought it was funny back then, you know. <laughs> So you go to three-week airborne school. How many jumps did you do? We did five jumps. And are those the they only did. five jumps you've ever done? Actually, well, um, <clears throat> I went up to when I first got, what was it? I think it was when I first got out of the Army. I went up to Orange, Orange Mass. They had a jump, like a, you could jump up there. They, they still do. That's where I skydive at Jump Town. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I went there once and did it. But you never but, jumped when you were active duty. No. Just those five jumps. And then you get out of airborne school after three weeks, and then where did you go? I Because um, now it's early 1968, right? Yeah, now we're going into 1968. Um, I had gave me a 30-day leave, and I had my flight ticket to Vietnam from there. So you just you went to basic training and then to airborne school. You didn't have another school after that. No, I went to basic infantry and then airborne. They send you um, eight weeks to eight weeks basic, eight weeks infantry school, three weeks jump school, and then 30-day leave. So when you get 30 days off, you come back to Lemonster, and you knew you were going to Vietnam in a month. Yeah, I knew, I knew where I was heading. So what did you do over those 30 days? Got drunk a few times. <laughs> um, it was still a minor. Yeah, you know, it was kind of funny. Uh, I, I, sometimes I think about this. I I couldn't go sit in a bar and drink a beer. You know, because that was against the law. Uh, you were too young, and but you know the country says you're too young to drink but we're going to put a gun in your hand. We're going to send you <laughs> over into combat. Yeah. It doesn't really I, make I, a lot of sense. No, it doesn't. I couldn't go into a casino cause I used to like to gamble. I couldn't go into a casino. I couldn't drink a beer. If I got caught drinking, I'm going to get thrown in jail. And, um, <laughs> cause I'm a minor and, but I guess minors can go into combat. <laughs> So you come home and you get 30 days off to kind of see your family and hang out with your friends. And then where did you go to get on the plane to go to Vietnam? Well, I went to, after I, 
Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, that was, um, I left Logan airport, flew out to Washington and there's an army base, Fort Lewis. And a couple of days later, they had me on a plane. It was a full plane. Every seat was taken. <laughs> so when, when you got out of airborne school and you're in Fort Lewis, are you a member of a unit at that point? How did the, how did it work then? Yeah, I'm not a member of a unit. Um, they, I had a, I'm in the barracks with a, a lot of people and I knew my departure date when I had to, you know, when I was going to leave. And then they said, once you get over there, you'll be assigned to a unit. So I didn't know. I figured my first thought was, okay, since I'm airborne infantry, I thought when I got over there, I was going to either be with the 173rd airborne unit or the 101st airborne unit. Cause those were the, two airborne units over there. It was just a matter of which one. That's what I thought anyways. Were you on the plane leaving Washington, heading to Vietnam with any guys you had become friends with? Actually, you know, when I got on the plane, I didn't know none of us knew each other. (laughs) Because we weren't, I wasn't at Fort Lewis long enough and that was to say, and the people that were around me in the barracks, none of them flew out the same time I did. So basically, I guess when we all got on the plane, nobody know, nobody knew who was who, you know, what kind of a job you had, if you were infantry, if you were, because everybody that went over there was in infantry. You know, they had clerks, they had cooks, they had all all kinds of jobs. We knew everybody wasn't going to go, wasn't going to be in combat. (laughs) So you, you fly out of Washington state and you land in Vietnam and the door of the plane opens. What was it like? Oh my God. We landed in a place called Cameron Bay and the humidity, uh, you know, we met, when we get landed on the tarmac, we had to go down the steps to get get onto the airport grounds and be just going down those steps before we hit the bottom. We were, everyone was just nothing but sweat. I'm going like, oh my God, the humidity must've been 80, 90% and the temperature was around in the nineties. And it was just, all I could think of was this is gonna be miserable. And then you get off the plane, it's hot as shit, and you have to figure out what your job is and where it is that you're going. How did they decide that with this whole plane full of people that don't know each other, didn't train together, and weren't part of any formal unit? So what happens? What they did was they sent us to a barracks, and there were a lot of people already in the barracks. And what they said is there'll be, there will be two formations a day, one around 10, 10 o'clock and one around four. 
and you, you've, you'd get into formation and they said, if your name gets called, just come up your orders. You know, that means we got your orders, what outfit you're going to be with and all that. So, and they said, could be anywhere from, could be here anywhere from two days to six days. But, you know, but when you hear your name, get, and then they used to assign you jobs to do, you know, during the day and custodial kind of jobs and things like that, just to keep you doing stuff. And me and a couple other guys, we learned how to hide pretty good. <laughs> we learned, you know, we learned, I said, man, I don't feel like <laughs> cleaning rooms and all that. I want to get to my outfit <laughs> and a couple other guys. And we found a place to hid, hide where we could hear them. Cause what they would do is call the people names out at the formation. They would come up and get their orders and everybody else that was standing, they would assign jobs for the rest of the day cleanup duty and stuff like that. And after that first day, I me and another couple other guys, we found a place that we could hear them call names, but they couldn't see us. <laughs> so after they assigned everybody jobs, we were, we ended up not having any. <laughs> and then the day comes where they call your name. Yeah. They, um, I remember my name got called, go up, get my orders. When I looked at it, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to see the 173rd or the 101st. And I see this, it says LLRP on it. I saw LLRP and I goes to the sergeant there. I goes, I didn't know what that meant. And I says, Oh, I think they messed up. I goes, I'm, I'm supposed to be with an airborne unit. And he looked at it and he looks at it and he goes, do you know what LRRP is? And I goes, I have no clue. <laughs> I goes, what is that? <laughs> he said, he said, you sure you don't know? Cause that's an all volunteer outfit. And I, I said, well, what is it? And he said, long range recon patrol. And, um, said, that's supposed to be an all-volunteer outfit. And I said, well, I didn't, I didn't know. He said, I didn't know what to do at that time. I didn't even, I had never heard of that outfit in my life, you know, being in the service. And um, he said, well, I'm sure you can get out of it if you want. If you want to go to a regular infantry outfit, but you're going to have to, someone's going to be here to pick you up tomorrow morning, take you to the, take you to your unit. Then you you figure it out with them, and um, once I got over there, there were actually there were oh there's five of us going, and the other other group other guys in it, you know we started talking and they hadn't volunteered either, and um, I guess nobody was volunteering for it, and they randomly picked people, and. I, I realized all the people that I'm with, all our last names, I think, began with an M. So, you know, how they got your names alphabetically, they must have gone to the M section. And if you were infantry, 
they assigned us there. So off, off we go. <laughs> so I did some research online, and you tell me if this is accurate or not. It says a long-range reconnaissance patrol is a small, well-armed reconnaissance team that patrols deep in enemy-held territory. Is that right? That's right. And then when it comes to LERPs, as they're commonly referred, um, when it came to the LERPs in Vietnam... The article that I'm reading says by 1967, formal LERP companies were organized, most having three platoons, each with a five, each with five to six man teams equipped with VHF, FM, and ANPRC 25 radios. LERP training was notoriously vigorous, and team leaders were often graduates of the U.S. Army's Fifth Special Forces Recons. Uh, recon school at Na Trang, Vietnam. Is that right? Yeah, they had the training there. Yep. You're right. So you're basically special operations now, right? Right. Well, you had the choice. You know, once, once I got, once we got there, all of us, you know, the new guys, we got there we got to meet the Colonel. They brought us into the Colonel. We went in like one at a time and the Colonel goes, I realize you guys, guys coming in didn't volunteer. And he said, I'm going to tell you what we do, what it's all about, what we're like. And then you can, I'll give you the, I'll give you the night to think it over. If you don't want it, want to be in it. He, he said, um, we'll get you shipped out to a regular infantry company. Um, cause he said, you know, the difference between us and them is that you're going to be in, in enemy, ter- deep enemy territory. And there's only going to be six of you versus you go to a regular infantry, there'll be a couple hundred of you. And, um, so we're not going to force you into it. He said, so you got a night to think about it and let me know tomorrow. I remember I was thinking I kind of walked out the door, then turned around and went back and said, I don't need the night. I'm in. It just, <laughs> you know, when you're young, you, you think you're invincible. <laughs> so that's where the story began for me for the LERPs. <laughs> so the next day, you're like, okay, I'm in. And where do they send you? Um, they sent me, put me on a team right away. The team was short. Team, they were short somebody. And I didn't go to that training. They um, was on the job training. <laughs> So they just threw you in there. Did you did you have a, a unit or a team designation? Well, we were the 20th, I guess we were the, I think it was the, I'd have to, I still have some letters that I got from back in those days. I say, I think it was the 20th Infantry. We were the LERPs. We were all airborne. Everyone was an airborne person that was in it. And I got to meet my, my team leader and 
the other guys that were going to, that were in it. And then they basically told us the way we operate is when you go out in the field, we'll be out for six days. Then you come back in as long as nothing happens, uh, get back in. And then you got like six days off and then you're back out for six days. The one thing that's kind of mind, mind racking about is when you're out in the junk or, you know, on a recon team, you're really not talking at all for those six days with each other. It's all like hand signals because when you're in enemy territory, you can't be around there talking English. <laughs> so, so I'm assuming you remember all the names of the guys that you were with on that original team, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do. We had a ranger, a guy called Ranger. He was um, he was the the sergeant. He was uh, I know he only had a few months. Uh, well, he had been there over six months now. Because when you went over there, you were over there for twelve months. There was Ranger. If I'm correct, he was from Tennessee. Um, there was a guy Clark. Um, Another guy named Farmer. That was his nickname. I, I always just call everybody called him Farmer, so that's what I called him. Um, and I'm running. My mind's running short on the other two guys. <laughs> so you you guys become a team, and you're six days on and six days off, and you're six days on. You're deep in enemy territory, barely speaking, just using hand signals to communicate. What kind of missions were you guys going on? What we were, it was usually the area we went into. I think there was there was reports that they thought the enemy, you know, the North Vietnamese were in, in that area. And they would give us a certain amount of ground to cover to see if there was any actually anybody in there or not. And you'd have six days, you'd have a start point and a finish point on that. If you didn't run into trouble on that sixth day, you were supposed to be at a certain point and the helicopters would come in to, you know, to take us out. And it was kind of like, you know, you're, you're walking in the jungle all that time, just looking and looking and looking and you know, at night we'd form a circle and everybody would take turns, you know, being, being awake for an hour. Then you'd pass, wake up the next person. They were up for an hour and just because everybody can't sleep at the same time. Cause some, somebody could, you know, the enemy could walk right up on you. For people my age, especially a lot of post nine 11 veterans, our only reference point is movies about Vietnam and then hearing the stories of people like you that were actually there. So when you're talking about sitting in a circle with five of your buddies, taking hour shifts of being able to sleep deep in enemy territory, like what was that like? What, what did it sound like? What were you looking for? Um, we're just looking this, like I said, to see if there was 
anybody there. Because um, if they were there, then we could mark it on the map where we saw the activity. And then when we got out of the jungle, then they could send in the bigger forces, you know, the, the main, a main body of soldiers. And, um, and again, like the reason we, we, we didn't talk out there was because there was, like I said, there was only six of us. We didn't carry medics with us and we didn't have, we didn't carry machine guns or anything. You know, we just had our M16s. So you have to be, you have to be quiet, you know, it was like silent and try and be like lizards where you blend into the, the surroundings. It get nerve wracking at times. And because you didn't go to the special schools for that, all of that camouflage, all of those skills of being quiet and lurking and observing and all that, you had to learn on the job, which is just crazy to me to think about. Yeah, I, I guess, like I said, I, I think the reason for all that was, um, I guess a lot of people didn't want to be in that outfit because of the risk that were involved. Sometimes if you're going to run into trouble with the enemy, it's a lot nicer to have a couple hundred people <laughs> than to have six of you. <laughs> and um, they, they had told me when I got there that's, Somewhere down the the road, they were going to send me to that training facility. But I don't think that was ever going to happen. So, I know. And you learn quick. When you're, when you're out there, it, you learn real quick. You know, we had a good, we had a good team. We had a, I, I thought the guys in our team were really good, you know. I learned from them. You're doing these six on six off shifts and you're getting picked up by helicopters, which having traveled with the military, the way that I have the, the helicopter pilots are like some of my favorite people. Those pilots are just badass. Was that your experience too? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, um, you know, when the helicopters are out there, they're going to try and shoot it down. So it takes, you know, and it was a helicopter pilot that came in. And basically the reason I'm here today is because of a helicopter pirate pilot. So, yeah, I thought, I thought they were pretty awesome. Why? What happened? That, well, the last patrol we got, I guess we were, from what I heard, we got circled, and um, actually, we were down to. We had. Uh, I don't know if I want to talk about this. Um, we were circled, and they opened up on us, and me, the sergeant, me and the sergeant got shot right away, and we knew we were. We were already down, we were down to five on that patrol. And actually, there were three guys left, you know, that hadn't got shot on that initial contact. And um, they were trying to 
get the helicopters to come get us and it was just a mess because the monsoons were going on the rains pilots didn't want to drive a lot of they didn't want to send helicopters out in the rain and i guess some some pilot from the f first cav from what i heard because i got shot i wasn't i was messed up pretty bad at the time but they said um a guy came out by himself, a helicopter pilot. They heard what was going on, came out and got us. <laughs> he flew out by himself? That's what I heard. Him and his door gunners and his co-pilot. I heard they, they was, like said, I was wounded at the time. I was, you know, they had, someone had crawled over and shot me up with morphine and for the pain and all that. So, so I appreciate the pilots. I have a big appreciation for pilots, helicopter pilots. So you get picked up by this guy and his crew that basically went out without orders. They just heard you guys were wounded and went and saved your life, basically. That's what I heard anyways. You know, that's what the other people told me. Where do they take you because you're wounded? I know they got when they got us back, us two back. You know the other guy that was wounded too shot up. As soon as, soon as we landed, I, I remember we were like on a stretcher and we were put on a a truck and brought into the hospital real quick. And you got shot in the neck. I got shot just above the heart. Oh, just above the heart. Yeah, <laughs> my whole shoulder was. All the bones in my left shoulder were just like shattered on the, on the impact. And they said, the doctor said it went in, started, it came in around the neck. But it went down above the heart, punctured my lung, put a hole in my lung. And yeah, so pretty messed up. So when you have that kind of injury, do they take you out of Vietnam? Is that how you ended up leaving there for good? When they could, they did. You know, they. I, I know. I know. When I first got in, they did surgery. I guess that was like emergency sur surgery, just to keep you alive. And then they brought me back in. It was either the next day or another day, day after, to go back in and, I guess, do what they needed to do. First surgery, they, I guess they said, was just to keep you alive. <laughs> so when something like that happens, you got two guys that are injured, and you were already down to five on your team, the other three guys in the team just get three new guys and they keep going out on missions, right? Until it's time for them to go home. Yeah. They were going to have to, I know, replace us. And, um, yeah, it's like life goes on. <laughs> they, there's always somebody there to replace you. Did you ever have contact with those guys ever again? As a matter of fact, um, one of my friends, he was, we became, he was with a different team. He wasn't in my team, but he was, he was alert. You know, there were four, 
we had four teams, two teams would go out, two teams would come in, two out, you know, that's how you rotated. He was with another team and we had become friends. And about when his year was up, he came out to Lemonster. He was all proud. He was in his uniform. I'm going, oh my God, what are you wearing your uniform for? <laughs> but you know, one thing I always thought about Lemonster, you know, I, I have to say there were cities you didn't want to wear a military uniform in because of the, you know, a lot of people didn't think much of the military. You know, they had that thing where, you know, you've heard things where if you wore a military uniform back then, that would be people spitting on you and you were a baby killer and all that. Um one thing I always felt about, I could be wrong, but I always thought about Lemonster was they, they, I always felt they supported the military. You know, maybe it's because we were a factory hardworking town, uh, what I considered it. And because um, I never heard anything negative from anybody in Lemonster, you know, the city I grew up in about the service. So, but he was in his uniform and, um, we were minors, but we had our fake IDs in and um, <laughs> we're still, imagine that we're still minors, been, been to a war, been shot up and still can't go in a bar though. And, um, <laughs> that's kind of funny. Can't still can't go into a bar room, but we had our fake IDs he, cause he was a minor too. And, um, we went down to a place called the Tankard and we drank, uh, we, we drank about four or five hours. And then we went down to Boston, down to the combat zone down there, did a little drinking down there. And it was real. I remember it was, we got hungry as usual. When you drink, it seems like you always get hungry. It was late at night and there was a pizza place open. So we went, got a pizza. And we're still out in Boston someplace and uh, we're pretty wasted. And um, <laughs> we threw up together. We both threw up. I remember that. <laughs> I had to pull over the car. We got out. We're on the side throwing up the pizza. And um, next morning, he, you know, he went back to Lemonster. He stayed at, I was at my parents' house. He stayed there overnight. And, um, we said our goodbyes the next day and never saw each other again after that. And you haven't kept in contact with any of the guys you served with? No, no. I think, I think that goes on a lot in the service. You know, if you've been in combat, I think you just kind of, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You still remember them. I can still see their faces. Of course, we were all teenagers back then. Now we're all old, but I still I still remember them. But I know I called one of them up. I found found the phone number. He was in Florida, and I know he answered when he answered the phone. I ended up hanging up. I never. I didn't know what to say. What was the pizza guy's name? The uh, Tom Lyons. Tom Lyons. 
And then you, uh, you're out of the military at this point, right? Or did you still have time left on your enlistment? I was, I was out. I was discharged because of my wounds. He, he still had time. I, I, you know what? He, he got drafted. I think they were, he was, they were going to let him out too. Just because sometimes when you come back from Vietnam, you only have like, you know, if you're drafted, you might only have two or three months left of your two year commitment. And I, I sometimes I think with a lot of the infantry people, they would just let them go home. I could be wrong, but that's what I thought they were doing back then. So when, because of your wounds that you suffered in Vietnam, you're a Purple Heart recipient. Did you receive any other awards or decorations from your time overseas? That was that was basically it. You know, they they just um, I don't know. They gave the on my records. It's there's a couple couple other things on there. I didn't know exactly what they meant, but <laughs> awards, but what they were, I didn't, I didn't think of it much, you know, I didn't care, you know, back then it was like, all right, let's go home. <laughs> but now that it's been this many years later, do you have any interest in trying to track some of these guys down or, you know, to, to go back and. You know, I, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I think I would like to probably see some of them at a distance. You know what I mean? It's like maybe not just to see them, but I don't know. I wouldn't know what to say. So I'd probably, you know, like. Like if they were in a restaurant, I'd like to be at the next table, but not just watching them. Just to know that they were okay. You mean? Yeah. To know that they're, they're healthy and hopefully, hopefully they're all, every one of them, you know, all of them are still alive. I don't, you know, we're all old now. (laughs) God, we were young back then, but now, now we're all in our seventies. But I, yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to see them, but you know, basically see them. (laughs) Well, you don't have to say anything. I mean, I'm sure that all of those guys are feeling the same way. Just, just seeing them doesn't mean you have to talk about everything that happened, but just to reconnect. I mean, especially with the internet now, you know, that you might have that ability to be, I mean, you know, maybe the internet is like, uh, like, I don't know. Like me jumping off the Empire State Building. <laughs> That's what you have me for, uh, Uncle Frog. I'm prehistoric. Believe I still. I'm talking to you on a flip phone. I know. Trust me. Getting getting you hooked up to be able to record this podcast. It was like, all right, I'm just going to call you. That's just how we're going to do I it. No, because I don't know how to text either. So, <laughs> <laughs> so people know the people can text me. I know how to read text, but then. Everyone, everyone that knows me says we can text them, but we 
don't expect to get a text back. He'll probably call you. Well, the the memories that I have growing up, I mean, obviously I was a little kid and you used to come and babysit me and stuff. And I knew that you were in the military and this stuff didn't really get talked about, you know, all that much when I was a kid in the, you know, mid to late seventies. But one of the things that I remember incredibly vividly, and I don't know if I've ever told you this or not, but really shaped a lot of the person that I became now is because, you know, Papa was in World War II and his dad was in World War One. And when I talk about my family that served in the military, I talk about you and that my uncle was in Vietnam. And you are part of the inspiration for why I am so active with the service and, and the work that I do with the military and the veterans community. And one of the most vivid memories I have was being a really little kid on the 4th of July and somebody lighting off fireworks. And I remember it really bothering you. And I remember you jumping under the table. And, yeah. and I didn't understand as a little kid, like I thought it was funny. And to this day, I remember that moment in my parents' kitchen. And I, and I feel horrible knowing what I know now that I was this little kid that thought it was so funny that my uncle like jumped under the table. Yeah. Yeah. I go through, I still, still have that problem. I'm not jumping under tables now, but I'm ducking. (laughs) It's like I duck. It's like, then I realize, God, (laughs) what are you doing, Gary? (laughs) So besides like the loud pops of fireworks and stuff, what other stuff reminds you? Like, are there smells or sounds or things that you see that like remind you of Vietnam? It's definitely the, you know, the fireworks, firecrackers and things like that. Cause it's just because I was involved in actual firefights, you know, we're, we're shooting our M16s and they're shooting their AK 47s and everyone's hoping the a bullet doesn't find them, you know, and when I hear that sound, it's still the other sounds that kind of freak me out or is when I, a helicopter every now and then you ever, you ever have a helicopter just go over you or something in the air? Yeah. Like a life flight helicopter or a, it could be, yeah, just a helicopter. Cause every now and then I'm in a place and it doesn't happen too often, but there have been a few times I was outdoors and comes a helicopter from someplace. I can hear the blades and my, uh, it just, my mind just shoots back to going out on a patrol and the helicopter leaving, you know, listening to the blades leave and going like, or the sound of the helicopter blades coming in. And I, I flash back to, to those days. Back then, did they offer any kind of help with, with any of that stuff? Because it's such a focus now with, with veterans that have served overseas to be able to deal with post-traumatic stress and, 
and all of the invisible wounds of war and, and the trauma of combat and obviously, in your case, a traumatic injury? Uh, no. <laughs> I was at the, where was I? I was at Chelsea Naval Hospital. They tried to put me at a hospital that was close to home, although Fort Devens would have made more sense. But they had me at the Chelsea Naval Hospital. And um, when they discharged me, he said, that's it. You're done. There was absolutely, no, there was absolutely no talk mentally wise about it with anyone. I guess that's probably the way it was in Korea and World War Two, you know. Yeah, and which is which is why, you know, there have been so many older veterans that have struggled with a lot of the things that they saw overseas because there was no mechanism in place to help reintegrate them. It, it's impossible for a guy like you to one minute be in Lemonster, to go to boot camp, school of infantry, airborne school, end up in Vietnam, shot home at the Chelsea Naval Hospital, and then, okay, you're out of the military and you're a Purple Heart recipient with a pretty catastrophic injury. Okay, good luck, yeah. attaboy, good game, go back to life as normal. I know. Well, there were times that, God, when we were on patrol sometimes, I'd be, everybody's mind would wander at every now and then, you know, remember sometimes at patrols, especially at, you know, at night, once we circled up, I'd be, I'd be thinking, God, I should be, I should be playing basketball at Bennett school right now in the summer league. (laughs) And here I am out in the jungles with ants crawling all over you and everything else. (laughs) So at one point when I'm a kid, and I don't know if it's because I cried all the time when you were babysitting me, but you decided to move away. And you moved out west, and you've been out there now for, you know, 40 years. Yeah, I have. <laughs> I, well, I ended up going to college, got my degree in physical education to teach, and I remember, oh, it was, I'm going into my junior year, and I, I'm at the University of Massachusetts. And I remember that, like, the guidance counselor, our, one of our counselors, were suggesting to change your major from physical education because trying to find a job is going to be real difficult. But none of us did that were that were at that session, and. I remember um, trying to find a teaching job in PE back then. It was like, it seemed like for every opening, there was like 80 people applying for it. So you had a one in 80 chance of getting it. And I'm going, oh, man, I should have majored in something else. But then I heard there were a lot of teaching jobs out in the Southwest. You know, they're like back east, there was a, a surplus of teachers. And in the southwest, there was a need of teachers. So 
I had to decide, do I want to stay home, you know, where I grew up, but probably never teaching or go to the Southwest. And so I went out to the Southwest. I got, I got offered a job in the Southwest. First, first place I applied, I got offered a job and it was on the Navajo reservation and I took it and haven't been back East really much since then. Getting all of the packages that you used to send us when we were kids of all of the arts and crafts and all of the amazing Navajo artwork and all of the things that you would send us as a kid, like I wanted to be Navajo so bad because I just thought that it was all so beautiful and, and this amazing culture that my uncle Froggy was part of and you know, I just, I think I, and I think at one point I probably told some kids on the playground or whatever, like, you know, I'm, I'm Navajo because I just loved the culture so much because of all the stories that we would hear about you talking about it. Yeah. Oh, do you remember, I bet you, see if you remember this, you're in the fifth grade. It was either the fifth or fourth grade. And I had come because schools out in the Southwest, we always got out of school before Memorial Day for our summer went all of usually the last week of May, June, July. And then we came back to school in August. And um, whereas back east, back then you came to school after Labor Day, but you were still in school in June. And I had come back to visit. Do you remember the day I went into school with you? Yes. The teacher, I did a little lecture on Native Americans. I didn't know if you remember that. I remember it. And that was, it. you know, I remember talking about it so much in school. It was like fourth grade, fifth grade, something like that. And I just remember being so enamored with the culture. And I always wanted to come out and visit you on the reservation. I always begged my parents to go there on vacation, but we never could. And I just always thought that the artwork and the, the, I just, the jewelry and all of the stuff that you used to send us was so beautiful. And I remember, you know, having long straight hair, just like I do now. And just always wishing that I was Navajo. Yeah. They're, and they're very artistic, very artistic. Some of the things. Do you still have that? Oh, yeah. Some, yeah. Some of those things at your house. Yep. The baskets and the sand art and, yeah. Sand painting. Yeah, all yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah, I still have. I got a bunch of that out here that I got, I put up. That team that you talked about, the state championship girls basketball team, that was a team of Navajo girls, right? Yep. Yeah, it was. And, um, that was at I was at a school called St. Michael's back then, and uh, it was a Catholic school on the reservation, but it was a small Catholic school and um, very good, very good basketball. I was there three years. We went to the state tournament all three years, and we won it one of the years. So that was yeah. You sent us T-shirts and stuff when you won the championship. Yeah, we're all, we're all solid. I guess I said, oh, people I know back east, they got to celebrate too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
I actually, I think I sent the tape. You did. Of the game. Yeah, somebody videotaped it with a big old video camera, and you sent a VHS tape so that we could watch the game. Yeah, I said I'm going to send it so they can all sit down and watch watch my small team. I think my tallest girl on the team was like five eight, and then everybody else was like five five, five four, five four. Boy, they were they were quick and they could shoot. And they played hard. <laughs> so you you've only come back a few times since you moved. And one of the things I've asked you when you and I have talked over the years is if you ever made it to Washington DC to see the Vietnam Memorial and the wall. Yeah, I haven't been there. I just I don't know. I it, I just don't. I don't know how to how to explain it, but I just have stayed away from it. But as you get older, is it something that you that you think you might want to do? Because I want you to know that if you ever wanted to go, that I would take you. Yeah, I I don't know uh, my emotional my state of mind. I don't know. <laughs> It would be one of those things that I'd have to be like, all right, let's go do it, or, you know. But I don't know. If... The the way that they design the wall is that it's a it's a giant black wall, and it goes from small to very tall and then down to small again. And the reason why it's designed that way is the wall gets taller, the more dangerous the war became, and the names that are on the wall are there in chronological order. And the tallest part of the wall is when you were there in 1968. Yeah, 68 was the year of Tet. That was there for people. Tet was when the North Vietnamese kind of put an all out effort in, that was the year I think more people, more Americans were wounded and killed than any other year in that war. If I'm correct, I could be wrong. No, you're right. That's why that part of the wall is so big. Yeah. Where were, where were you in 1968 when you were going out on all of those patrols? Where, where were you exactly in Vietnam? I was in the central highlands, uh, in an area called Pleiku and on K in this right in the center, right in the middle of Vietnam. And I would assume an incredibly dangerous part of Vietnam. Yeah. Well, you know, especially when you're going out in these long range patrols, because, you know, when you go out in those patrols, well, basically, if you run into trouble in a recon team, long-range recon team, you're not, you basically, you're not going to get any help for at least 30 minutes because you're in deep. You're not around really any friendly forces that can get there quickly. So you kind of, they're I remember one time we ran into problems and we were playing cat and mouse while we were waiting for our chopper to get out and to get to us. 
and because um, we had been spotted and um, was, we were playing hide and seek for a good good 30 minutes before the our friendly forces could get to us for help. Well, I, I bring up the I bring up where you were in Vietnam and I bring up the wall because my assumption is that you know a lot of guys whose names are on the wall. Not you know not really and the main reason for that is you gotta remember I was in an outfit where we were only six man teams instead of a couple hundred guys. Our our numbers were were small. So there weren't a, you know, if I was like in 173rd or 101st infantry unit, I would have known a lot of people. Hopefully their names wouldn't have been up there. <laughs> but there are, but, but some of the guys from your teams are up there though, right? Um, as far as I know, as far as being dead, I don't, my immediate group, no one, there were people wounded that got wounded, but nobody that I knew is died. So that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. I'm actually surprised to hear you say that. Yeah. But now I'm only talking about a group of, you know, 18 people, right. 18 to 24 people versus a couple hundred, two, 300 people. Well, I, I really wanted to talk to you about all of this today because, you know, you and I have talked about it in the past and I wish that before Papa died that I had sat down to talk to him about World War II and documented his story, but he never really wanted to talk about much. He was in the South Pacific for a couple of years and he really, until he got really old and, and then obviously once he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and some of those memories came back and he would talk about them. But for the most part, growing up, all of the people that I knew in my family that were in the military, nobody, even yourself, never really wanted to talk about it. And now it, it's like, you know, if we don't have these conversations and document these stories now, they can disappear. Yeah. And, you know, I think being able to talk about it is probably uh, emotionally <laughs> Probably good. It's really good. <laughs> More than bad than keeping it pent up all the time. And I bring up the other guys because I would bet that if those guys are still alive, that they all feel the exact same way that you do, that they want to know that you're okay. And they, you know, I, I think it would be amazing if you were able to, you know, have some contact with these guys before it's too late you know, to kind of find out what happened to everybody and to know that everybody went on with their lives and had families and had experiences. And, you know, you never had kids, but you have taught probably, what, thousands of kids? Oh, 
Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. I've got I've got a. It may not be a blood family, but it's a family <laughs> of of kids over the years. Kids that I taught. Kids that I coached. Kids that you used to babysit and, when and they you're, screamed. And, and you're like and you're like family. So. Yeah. Because I, I talked about you out here with people, you know, some people I know, and it's like, it's like, I got kind of like a daughter that she's not my daughter, but she's kind of like a daughter. <laughs> and um, I talked about your radio show and things like that. And I've talked about that with some of my athletes. So. Well, I was really hoping that we were going to be able to get together in person because I was supposed to be coming out to Vegas um, at the end of the winter to do another broadcast out there. And a lot of the time when I would be traveling for work, I wouldn't have a lot of downtime to be able to get together. And, and I was going to drive down and see you. And, you know, then the virus happened and obviously the radio station getting sold. And so I, I haven't been able to come down there. So that's why we had to have this conversation over the phone. But, um, you know, I... I want to come out and obviously I want to introduce you to my boyfriend who you've heard a lot about, but you haven't met yet. And you can tell him all of your Marine jokes. Yeah, I could, I know we could, we can go at it. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the old, old versus the young, the, the young. <laughs> but I, I really hope that there comes a point where you get reconnected with some of the guys that you served with and, um, even if it's just to know that, that they are doing well, you know what I mean? What, whatever level of contact and information you would be comfortable with. I hope that you get that. Yeah. I, yeah, I kind of like, like I said, I'd like to know if they're still healthy, they've had a good life, you know, still care. It's like you care about them. And, um, like I said, I'd like to see him just to see him. Did they call <laughs> you froggy? Cause that was a nickname you got growing up in Lemonster, no, right? There was, no, there was a guy that called me, um, uh, called me short round. Because <laughs> of my size, you know, I was the, the small guy. <laughs> so it was like, Hey, short round. How you doing? So of all of the guys that you, that you remember that you served with, who were the guys that, that you, rem, that, that you would really like to try and find out about? I guess I'd like the, uh, guy named Tom Lyons. The, the pizza the guy. Old, the, the guy came back to see me. I, I hope he's doing okay. Where was he from again? He was from Massachusetts. Oh, he was? He was. I think he was from Somerville. I think he was from Summer. I keep Somerville keeps popping up into my head. And then who else? I I think he's passed away. Uh, his name was David Motlow. He is from Florida. He was a Seminole Seminole Indian. And we met. I met David during airborne school and then he turned up he ended up in the in long range recon too 
I'm going to do some Googling and see what I can find. Maybe somebody listening to this podcast. Because he would be Army, right? Yeah, we were in the Army. Well, we'll see if we can find him. Like I said, I think he was from Somerville. That'd be cool. I kind of, yeah. I think that would be amazing. Yeah. Then you guys could have a pizza and not puke it up this time. (laughs) Right. I know. We met up again, probably only take one beer now. We'd be drunk and have a pizza and uh, throw up again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Back then, we could drink and drink. Now, now, my age, it takes about one or two drinks and I'm ready to go to bed for the night. (laughs) (laughs) God. Oh, man. Well. How your body changes as you get older. Yeah, right? I really appreciate you doing this with me, Uncle Frog. Yeah. And I need to, um, it's funny how you pick up little nicknames. I got I got that, my nickname, that was from basketball. There's always jumping around, basketball. <laughs> That's why and, they called you Uncle Froggy, was because of basketball? Yeah, that name got, that nickname got picked up playing basketball. I got, jumped up and got a rebound. Someone said, like, hey, you jumped like a frog. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's how that nickname got got. I don't think I knew your name was Gary until I was in high (laughs) school. I don't think a lot of people know that. (laughs) My name, my real name. (laughs) And then, then I picked up that short round, Vietnam. And then seemed like once I came out to the Southwest, people just started calling me G or G man. Yeah. Yeah. I got a couple guys that just say, Hey, G man, how are you doing? (laughs) <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this with me, Uncle Frog. It's it's a it's a story that I've I've told many times when people ask me what inspired me to do the work that I do with the military and veterans and and I always bring up Papa and and I always bring you up and I don't know if I ever told you that or not, but No, you didn't. I appreciate it that you, you know, I appreciate what you do for people in the service. You know, growing growing up and and knowing about the service of the people that are in your family, but not really knowing everything, just hearing bits and pieces when you're a kid, but knowing the effect that it had on on you. And, you know, I have so many memories of you as a kid, you know, going to Kimball's ice cream. Oh, and- yeah, I remember those days. Oh, don't say that. Now I got to come back home. You see, <laughs> if that's what it's going to take is a Kimball special oh, to get you back goodness. home to visit. Oh, love the banana, if I could send you split. one, I would. Banana split. Can't be. Are they still oh. open? Yes, they are. Uh, them and C&M pizza. They're still there too. Wow. <laughs> I need to get back someday. Yeah, you do. You let me know when you want to come and I'll send you the ticket. Okay. No, you just need to pick me up at the airport. <laughs> I can I can do that too. <laughs> you gotta you gotta get back. I know. And I obviously I wanna come and visit you too. Yeah. I kinda like to get back just to see the 
see the town, the city again. I haven't been there since 19, what was it, 1997 was the last time. And I haven't seen you since, I think, 2005 yeah. when I came out to Colorado, Colorado to visit you. I remember that. Yep. So I think it's about time. Yeah, I do too, actually. Well, well we maybe gotta, if we, we can find get, Tom Lyons, we we'll get, get you out here. virus to do it, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll make that the first priority, and then we'll... Yeah. Then we'll make it happen. Yeah, we'll have to. Then you can see my war room. Oh, yeah, that's right. So you got to do something for me, though. You got to, you and I had talked a while ago about you going through some of your old pictures. Did you ever find pictures of you in the army, of you in your uniform? Because I want to hang you up in the war room and I don't have any pictures of you. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to find a good one. <laughs> well, Find, even if you don't think it's a good one, just find me something. Okay. All right. I'll do otherwise, otherwise, I'm not going to have any pictures to put up with the podcast. Okay. Ooh. So you got to get me one. All right. I will. I will. Go do it today. Put it in the mail. Okay. Uh, I'll scan it for you and send it back to you. Okay. All right, Uncle Frog. I will... I will let you go and get on with the rest of your day, trying not to sweat too much while you're in ridiculous heat out there. I got somebody coming over to put a new water heater in. My water heater broke. <laughs> well, there you go. You got a full day. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk soon. But before the hot water heater guy gets there, go find those old pictures. Okay. That's my job. That's your job. You got homework. You're the you're the, you're the lieutenant. That's right. I'm, <laughs> I'm like the drill sergeant. Yeah, you're the drill sergeant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Uncle Froggy, I know you didn't hear it a lot when when you got home, but I know that everybody listening to this is going to want to say, "Welcome home. Thank you for your service." And you know, for me. I'm just so grateful to have you in my life. So thank you for doing this for me. Well, thank you too. I, I've enjoyed knowing you, <laughs> even though I haven't seen you in a long time. I still know you. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. You take care. All right. We'll see you later. All right. Bye. Well, there he is. That is my Uncle Froggy. And that conversation has been a long time coming. I don't mind admitting that it took me some tissues to get through that interview. And I would really love it if you know someone that fought in Vietnam, especially in the Central Highlands in 1968, or you know someone that was alert or in long-range reconnaissance, I would love to be able to reconnect my uncle with his friend Tom Lyons, who was a LERP at that same time. And if he remembers correctly, from Somerville, Massachusetts. So, I don't know, maybe we could put the word out and try and reconnect these guys. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Once again, thanks to Latini Creative Solutions at latinicreative.com and Jumptown Skydiving at jumptown.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. 
If you liked what you heard, don't forget to click subscribe and uh, don't miss an episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast. Share it with your friends. And if you could leave a comment and maybe even a five-star review, that would be much appreciated. New episodes every Wednesday. And of course, every Tuesday night at 8.30, you can join me live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room.